0: For much of history, there's been a mysterious and kind of romantic relationship between mankind and the grapevine, in particular its capacity to produce wine. Francis Soltis, a New York poet, sums it up well. He says, there's a power within the succulent grape that made thee stronger than all human power. It baffles death in its exulting hour and leaves its victim fortune to escape. Thy cheering drops can magically drape atrocious thoughts of doom with bloom and flower, turning to laughter, calm, cares torment sour, and flooding dreams with many a gentle shape. Ecstatic hope and resurrection lie in thy consoling beauty, and when e'er pale mortals mortals sip thee, bringing soothing peace, I see a blue and orange-scented sky, a warm beach blessed by God's untainted air, circling the snowy parapets of Nice. some nice words from old Francis. And Jesus tells us in today's gospel that I am the true vine. He says, I am the true vine. And though though wine can be romantic, so there's tons of poetry written about it. We have this romantic image of vineyards. It's also very practical. It's been a staple of the diet of, of many human beings, in particular, in the Mediterranean, but in much of the world, for most of history, and along with kind of olive oil and bread and water, it makes up much of the essentials of life and all these things are are simple and accessible but also deeply symbolic and we see them throughout the scriptures and that and that 's I think why it's fitting that they make up also our sacramental life. All of our sacraments consist of those four simple elements. I think we see in Psalm 104 that the psalmist praises God for all of his creation, but in particular he says he praises God for the wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. I don't have time to kind of expound on all four of these sacramental elements, so I want to focus in on the one that Jesus gives us today, the grapevine, the grape. And the image of the vine is, is a theme that we see throughout all of the Old Covenant. It's a kind of a discourse between the prophet and the, and the people. And we see in Isaiah in particular, he sings the song of the vineyard. And he would have sang this song at the Feast of Tabernacles. And usually the songs that they would sing would be joyful songs of, of the Lord. And so Isaiah kind of gives them a twist in this story. He tells the story of a friend who had a vineyard. And in that vineyard, he had rich soil, and so he plants the best seeds to grow a great vineyard. And he, and he cultivates the land carefully. And if you know anything about wine or grapes, it takes forever for them to produce any fruit. So he takes the time to cultivate it carefully. And despite the soil and all of his work and all of the care, the vineyard produces nothing but worthless sour small grapes and so the owner has no choice after all this time except to just leave it to be trampled and overrun and plundered and when he sings this song to the israelites they realize that they are the vineyard that's the point of the message is that you're the vineyard that god planted you in this land you did not belong here he planted you here He cultivated you, he cared for you, he loved you, and you've produced nothing but sour grapes. And so now you will be abandoned. And so we see the exile. The exile comes as a result of this. And in Psalm 80, we see the the psalmist lamenting this fact. He says, You brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations and you planted it, you cleared the ground before it. It took deep root and it filled the land. So why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by can pluck its fruit? And then he pleads to the Lord. He says, turn back again, God of hosts, look down from heaven and see and visit this vine. When we look at Jesus' own ministry, we see him take up the same image of the vine and the vineyard. He puts a little bit of a twist on the story again. He, He tells the story of God, who's the owner of the vineyard, and has gone on a long journey. He's gone away. And we, the church, at the time, the Jewish people, are the tenants of the vineyard this time. We're not the fruit. We're the tenants. And we're here, we're to, here to care for God's fruit. And we see the owner who, who still expects this fruit despite being gone for a long period of time. And so he sends servants over and over and over again. The prophets come. And they demand the fruit of the vineyard, and every time he sends a prophet, the people mistreat the prophet, or they kill the prophet, or they, they wound the prophet, and they give him nothing. So over and over again, we disobey the Lord, and then he finally, at the end, says, "I will send my son, and surely they will respect my son." Jesus is obviously speaking of himself here. He sends his son, and all the people of the vineyard say, "Is." This is the heir of the vineyard. We can have this vineyard if we kill him. So they kill the son, the heir of the vineyard, thinking somehow that the vineyard will then be theirs. So Jesus asks after telling that parable, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And the Pharisees answer rightly, he will slay those wicked servants and give the vineyard to a new people. And then they realize that he's talking about them. So that's Jesus' image of the vineyard. That's not the one we receive today, though. But I think this, that one, in particular, speaks to our culture in our time. Because we've been given this world to care for. Uh, this creation that God created so and cultivated so carefully. Yet, we see in our culture, explicitly in, in Nietzsche, but also in the culture at large, that if we just pretend that God doesn't exist... If we just declare God dead, then the vineyard is ours. Then we're the master of our own lives. If, if we just declare that God is no longer in charge, that we are now the heirs of this vineyard, then we get to decide what is right and wrong. I think we see from that, from that parable how foolish that way of approaching life is. But that's not the, that's not the end of the story. Jesus gives us a, a, a very different image in the gospel today. And what does he say? He says, I am the vine. I am the true vine. In the other parables, God is the owner. He looks down on his creation, but he's not in creation. He's not a part of creation. And that's what's so profound about this parable. Jesus is now the vine. And that changes everything. With this image, the fate of the vineyard is in a sense secure. Because God will never desert his vineyard if he is the vine itself. This speaks to just how profound the Incarnation is, that the fact that Jesus became a man. Christ is with us in every possible way. He took on a body, a human intellect, a human will, and he has it forever. He's bound to his creation for all of eternity. Jesus sits up in heaven in this moment, with a human body, a resurrected body, and a human intellect, and a human will. And, that, and we can't meditate on that truth enough. It's just incredible. So he's bound up with us forever, and he will never desert us. But all the same, it doesn't mean that he will just tolerate us forever. He prunes us. He wants us to bear fruit for his kingdom. And so the Father is the vine dresser. And I don't know if you've ever seen anyone prune, uh, say, for example, in Montana, if you've ever been up to the Flathead, and you've seen someone at work pruning the cherry trees up there, it looks like they're killing the things. You know, they're cutting off every excess branch so that all the energy can be focused into those fruit-bearing branches. They're just cutting away huge sections of this tree. And it almost looks ridiculous. It looks like it will die. But instead, it bears great fruit. And so, our lives are the same. The Lord doesn't allow us any kind of excess energy to be wasted. So, what does that mean? That means we're going to suffer, especially as Christians. It means we're going to suffer more than everyone else. So if you've chosen to be a Christian, you've chosen to suffer more than the rest of the people in the world. So be ready for that. And what exactly does this purification look like? And, and, and what's the goal? I think we look to Jesus as a model why does he die on the cross to pay the debt of our sin and to save us and to show us his unfathomable love you know the depth is unfathomable so even in this incredible act he leaves us a reminder of this love for all of eternity which is the Eucharist the wine and bread that the priest offers that I will offer in this Mass become the fruit of Christ's death on the cross, his true body and blood for us to consume and to become a part of him. It's kind of an incredible mystery. And so Christ's purification was the cross and the fruit was the Eucharist, an eternal life which the Eucharist gives us. Yet that doesn't answer the question for us. What does our purification look like? It looks like a life that is inevitably full of suffering. Uh, every injustice that we experience, every disappointment, every sadness, every injury, every evil, we can turn into the fruit of God's kingdom. And that's the kind of the beauty of the Christian life. That those are things that inevitably happen in this world are exactly the things that bring us closest to Christ. And the flip side of that is if we don't bring them to the Lord and let him bear fruit from them, then our suffering will inevitably make us bitter and hostile and prideful. And in the end, it will bring us to despair. And we see so much of that in our world. I think in this fallen world, it's inevitable that we're going to face suffering. And sometimes suffering that seems unbearable and deeply unjust. And sometimes it is deeply unjust. But in this moment, that's the moment in which we're called to remain on the vine. To take up our cross with Christ. Not to play the victim, but to take up our cross. And to allow him to strengthen us. I think, in a very concrete way, we must live in the Eucharist. Because that's, that's the thing that shows us the way in which our lives will bear fruit. The most important thing we will ever do as Catholics, is to receive the Eucharist. And it seems weird that the most important thing that we'll ever do is something that we just receive. But that's the way of the Christian life. That we can do nothing apart from Jesus, he tells us that. So therefore, the most important thing we do is to receive communion. And to receive it as much as possible. And it's only then that we can respond to God's love in kind. We're not called to just survive in this life. To live as long as possible before the bitterness of old age kind of catches up with us and overwhelms us. Certainly there are seasons of intense suffering in our life in which we just endure. That's just the reality of human life. But if we remain in Christ, then those seasons will turn into kind of the most fruitful seasons spiritually. Those are the times in which we will witness in the most powerful way to Christ's love. I don't know how many of you remember the final years of John Paul II as he kind of fell into, deeper and deeper into Parkinson's and suffered in a more and more intense way and and it was prolonged, it lasted years. But in the midst of all of that, he witnessed so powerfully to the redeeming act of suffering. He taught the world how to suffer in a very real way. And so, we do the same in our own lives. And hopefully in a less intense and prolonged way. But if we're called to that, we're called to that. I don't think it's, it's too helpful to see the Eucharist just as an image of Christ's suffering. We need to see it more fully as an image of his love for us. As the, as the deep and unfathomable love that Christ has for us. But we can't separate love from suffering. That's just the truth of love, is that it's willing to suffer. And Saint Teresa of Calcutta says so beautifully: "Love which is not willing to suffer is not worthy of the name. Love which is not willing to suffer is not worthy of the name." So, if we, the branches, remain in Christ, who is the vine, who gives us life, our strengthening, our the suffering that we experience in this world will strengthen us. It will purify us uh, and give us endurance in the Christian life, and it will make us saints. And in the end, it will give us a deeper capacity for love, uh, for joy, and a greater desire for heaven, because we know this world is not our home. So remain in Christ, and you will bear great fruit.